Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I, I know a lot of y'all, but uh, I'll tell you very briefly about myself. I, I'm Mike Yanoff. I'm married to Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia works with the Denisons. She uh, she runs Christian Parenting, um, the Janet Denison side of uh, Denison Forum. Um, we have three kids. Uh, Brett's with us. He, he turns 12 next week, and then we have a daughter who is a sophomore in high school, and we have a three-year-old that uh, y'all have seen running around here at times who we fostered uh, and came into our home when he was two months old, and we've since adopted. So he's three now, and he's just kind of running our home. Um, and, and it kind of feels like me and a grandparent. But because, because when he graduates from high school, we'll be in our 60s. So um, we're, we're talking about fostering and maybe adopting another. I don't want to calculate how old we'll be when that kid comes into our home and, and goes through high school. Um, all right, let me start us in prayer, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we, we are just in awe of your presence. Um, we love you. We know you're a good God. Uh, we, we know your ways are so far beyond our understanding. Um, everything about you is beyond our understanding. Your very existence uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is beyond our understanding. Uh, the fact that you would, um, the fact that Jesus would die for us is beyond our understanding. And, and also beyond our understanding is some of the things that happen on this earth while we're here. Um, one with our gra the grace that you extend to us when we don't deserve it and could never earn it, uh, and also in the tough stuff that we go through and just I, it, we can't possibly understand some of the things that happen to us and others. Um, I don't pray for understanding. Um, I, I just pray for uh, the things that we can and that you promise we have here on earth, um, joy and peace. Uh, faith, hope, and love. Um, help, help us to understand those better and, and appreciate those better today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, if you could pick any, any, job, any job in the world, what would be your dream job? Or, or, or maybe what, what are the coolest professions you could have? Um, maybe it's Uh oh, freezing up again. Okay, no problem. Uh, maybe it's a Legoland designer. This is a this is a real job, by the way. These are real postings recently. Um, maybe maybe it's a Bluebell flavor guru. That's a real job, by the way. Um, I don't know what it pays, um, but but it would be pretty cool. There you go, a Legoland designer. A bluebell flavor guru. Maybe it's a travel blogger. I don't think that pays much, but the benefits are pretty cool. Uh, it, maybe it's a bounty hunter. Um, that, that's kind of a high risk job, but it would be kind of cool. Uh, you, you know what's you know what's never on the list of coolest professions? Lawyer, and that that's that's what I do. That um, never on the list of coolest professions or dream job. Um, but even amongst lawyers, what I do particularly, which is an appellate lawyer, it, even amongst lawyers, we're viewed as nerdier, nerdier than even lawyers in general. Um, and there's probably good reasons for this. One, one is that 
that many of us carry around things like this, like a pocket constitution. I literally carry this around with me. Um, I, I forgot to tell y'all, um, I'm a lawyer in the mornings, and then I coach varsity softball in the afternoons at my daughter's high school. So, um, and, and I do carry this on the field. My players can tell you I pull this out frequently. Um, we also, our bookshelves are filled with books like this. I mean, they're just filled with dorky books like this. Um, it, it, here's, here's the point. Um, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of a different breed, and, and we, make, we make fun of people that don't do things that are real precise in writing, like the Oxford comma. Yet y'all know what the Oxford comma is, of course, right? Those of y'all that are in school, I hopefully know what it is. The Oxford comma says when, when you list things out, okay, when you list out things, you have to have the last comma. It's, it's the string of commas. Um, and if you read newspaper articles, they are constantly filled with, with string citing that doesn't have the last comma. That's in part to save an extra character, and it's in part maybe lazy, lazy writing, in my opinion. Um, but, but the Oxford comma is really important. I love my parents, Superman and Wonder Woman. Uh, that's my parents there, by the way. That's Superman and Wonder Woman, of course. Take out the Oxford comma it, it kind of changes the meaning of the sentence, right? I love my parents, comma, Superman and Wonder Woman, leaving us to wonder if Superman and Wonder Woman are my parents. Um, so the, the Oxford comma matters. Um, I, here's the point, preciseness in, it, preciseness in writing matters a lot to me as a lawyer. Um, it should matter to everybody, but particularly if you write for a living, your preciseness in writing matters. It, it's preciseness in the Bible it's the, it's the beauty of the literature, um, how it withstands the test of time that attracts me to the Bible. Um, it, it, is, it is unrivaled in classical literature. If you look at classical literature, and I mean hundreds to thousands of years old, if you look at classical literature, um, there are no ancient texts that are like the Bible, none of them. There are none of them that were written within 100 or so years of the actual events. That, di that didn't happen. The history of, of Romans written by people like Tacitus um, and, and others was handed down and written hundreds to thousands of years after the actual events and, and viewed as reliable, by the way. Um, th there may be one to two fragmented copies of, of classical literature and texts, classical meaning hundreds to thousands of years old. There's thousands of virtually completed texts of the Old and New Testament, written by dozens of different people, obviously, um, putting together two faiths, Judaism and, and Christianity, and, and it is unrivaled um, in classical literature. But having said that, uh, it might have some grammar issues. It, it might have some issues with the grammar, and, and, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second, but... Um, it may make sense that it would have some grammar issues, right? It was written in two to three languages. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament's written in Greek and Aramaic. And when you translate those, that can be difficult and that can be imprecise. E even if you take absolute care and get the foremost experts on Hebrew and Greek, it, it's very hard to translate from those two languages into English, where it was originally translated, um, formal English and then other and then other versions of English, 
and, and then many translations, and it can be very hard to translate that precisely. So there can be some imperfections in that, but that's not what I'm talking about. These were, it was actually originally grammatically, technically speaking, maybe incorrect. Um, but here, here's what I've concluded, um, and here's what I think. I think bad grammar can make good theology. Um, let's look at a couple of examples. Genesis 1 is the creation narrative, obviously. Um, Genesis 1 lays, lays out everything that's created start, starting at the very beginning. Um, there's one thing that precedes Genesis 1, and that's God, and God has always existed. Um, so there's no creating that needs to come, come about. Um, so when it says at the very beginning of Genesis 1, in the beginning, it means in the beginning for us. It means in the beginning for what we now know as earth and everything around us. It doesn't mean there's a beginning for God because there wasn't. There is no beginning for God. God has always existed. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And, and then it goes on and lays out the creation narrative, right? Uh, starting in verse 26, it tells us how we were created, humans, and here's what it says. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This word God is Hebrew, obviously, the, the entire Old Testament's in Hebrew. This word God is Elohim. That's the Hebrew word for it. It's a plural word, interestingly. It's God, but it's a plural word. Um, strange concept because, because the, the Hebrews believed that God was a monotheistic God. They were the first to believe that, um, certainly the first established religion to believe that, but God's plural in the Old Testament. Elohim is plural. Uh, that makes sense if you continue to read this verse because he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, uh, it, it, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, it, there are some who interpret this as saying when God says, let us make man in our image, he's really talking about, he's talking to the angelic beings and everything around him in heaven. And he's saying uh, to the angels, we're going to do this together. Let us make man in our image. doesn't make a lot of sense to me because that we weren't created in an angel's image. There's nothing about us that's like the angels. Um, the angels are spiritual beings. Um, I don't know if they fly around with wings, but they're certainly not like us. We were created in God's image. So when God says, let us make man in our image, he's speaking to himself collectively. Um, th this concept that God speaking in the plural to himself is consistent with the Trinity, isn't it? At creation, God is speaking to himself, Father, Son, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. He's telling himself, he's having, he, from the very beginning, God has a relationship with himself. So, of course, he would create us to be relational because he was relational in the beginning. I mean, in the beginning for us, of course. So, God has always been relational. God has always been about relationship. If from the very beginning, he speaks to himself in three persons. Um, that makes sense. Of course, because he said, let us make man in our image. Colossians 1, 15 to 16 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all, three, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones on dominions or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul is saying Jesus was there at creation. Again, back to Genesis 1, that makes sense. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all there at creation, referred to as Elohim, the plural word for God. Everything makes sense so far, but then we get to the next verse. That's Colossians 1. Then we get to the next verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God, same word, Elohim, plural. Uh, every, every kid in here, every student, you know, adults, y'all know too, um, plural. I mean, the subject and the verb are supposed to match. If it's a singular subject, it should be a singular verb, right? He creates. If it's a plural subject, they, then it should be a plural verb, create. Um, in the English, it, it works out that way. Um, it's past tense, so you don't really even see the tense. But God, singular, the verb there is created. It's the Hebrew word bara. It means to create out of nothing. It doesn't mean create like to build something and to put your hands on it and, and to take certain things from equipment and nail them together and craft it. That's not the word. There is a Hebrew word for that. That's not what's used here. Bara is to create out of nothing. It could never have a context for us. It just doesn't exist for us. We can't create out of nothing. We have to start with something. But for God, bara works to create out of nothing. Elohim, plural, subject. Bara in the Hebrew is singular. Plural subject, singular verb. This is the equivalent of saying they creates doesn't work. It's a little bit of a grammar problem. Um, it's bad grammar, but it's good theology. We believe in the Trinity. God at the very beginning, even at creation, was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is, he is fully relational. He is fully three persons, but he is also fully God as one. And he creates as one. He creates three yet one, the Trinity. I don't understand it. Um, maybe you understand it better than I do, but I'm not sure we can fully understand this concept of the Trinity. Um, uh, there are other faiths who, who believe in God as one, right? A monotheistic God. The Jews believe this. Their faith originated before, before us as Christians. The Muslims also believe that God is one. That is, that is their very mantra is God is one. Um, their faith came about long after Christians, but where we depart is we believe God is one, yet three, the Trinity. I don't understand it. I don't know how we could possibly fully understand it in our finite minds. But a God you can, you can fully understand in your minds is man-made and not worth worshiping. To me, that's one of the most persuasive things about Christianity is that the Trinity could not be created by man. It doesn't make sense. This concept that God is three yet one. Um, arguably bad grammar, but good theology. There's another example of this, and, and that's re really where I want to land today. Um, it, they're called the three divine sisters. I didn't know this until recently. Um, the three divine sisters are in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. 
You know 1 Corinthians 13, of course. Um, if you've been to a wedding, it was, if it was a Christian wedding, you've probably heard it spoken of. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. Um, Paul is talking about love. It's read at weddings, but, but it's not about love in, in the marriage context. It's talking about spiritual gifts. And God is saying that, that these spiritual gifts are given to us as believers and we're supposed to use them. We're supposed to use them in our faith. They're not given to us for our own benefit. They're not given to us so we can, so we can go make money. Um, they, of course, might be used to, tangentially for that purpose, but that's not what they're for. He says these spiritual gifts are given to you so that you may further the kingdom, so that you may go and, he says, so that you may go and tell other people about Jesus. You're going to be given spiritual gifts. You may be given the gift of administration, Go use it to, to get believers together. Go help believers get organized so that they can go preach the gospel for those who are called to preach. For those who are called to teach and you're an administrator, help them do that or help in the church. And we're all given these different gifts and we're supposed to use them, but we're supposed to use them out of love. And, and that's what Paul's talking about is and here's here's where that chapter ends he says first corinthians 13 13 so now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love faith hope and love he says those three abide um faith hope and love right if we're looking at the sentence is obviously plural it's three things and, and they abide the verb there is mene. Um, now we're in Greek, if we're translating. Some of the New Testament's in Aramaic. This is in Greek. Uh, now, now we're in Greek, and the verb there is mene. Again, it's a singular verb. Um, so plural subject, singular verb. Um, Jesus used this word, by the way, mene. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Um, that again is, is abides, mene. That makes sense that it's singular there, of course. Whoever is singular subject. And then abides it is a singular verb. But back here, it's a plural subject, faith, hope, and love. It's translated into English as abide, but really mene should be abides this is the equivalent of saying faith hope and love they abides it's arguably bad grammar um but it's good theology um wh why why is it done that way here well i don't know um it may just be a quirk of of greek liter of greek context um but it is good theology here's why Faith, hope, and love have to go together, much like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're inseparable. They are one, yet they are three. Faith, hope, and love for the Christian have to go together. They are inseparable for Christians. You cannot take one without the other. Um, like the Trinity, three and one. Our faith is supposed to define us. That's the first one. Genuine faith is supposed to define us. Uh, in, a recent, in a recent judicial confirmation hearing, um, a senator, Dianne Feinstein from California, 
um, was questioning a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals justice. And she was hostile to the justice. Um, The justice was Amy Coney Barrett, who's outspoken about her Christian faith. She's now on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. She was on the very short list to be a Texas Supreme Court justice when Kavanaugh was nominated. Um, She will probably be the next nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court if the current president were to nominate another one for some reason. Um, Amy Coney Barrett, outspoken about her Christian faith, Here's, here's what Senator Feinstein asked her. I didn't really ask it, told her. Said, the dogma lives loudly within you, and that's a concern. The dogma lives loudly within you, and that's a concern. The dogma that she's referring to is Barrett's Christian faith. She might, she might as well have said, I, I know you have faith, but you live your faith, and that's what concerns me. That is exactly what she told her. Um, Here's where the Constitution comes in. Constitution says, Article 6, this is Article 6, Clause 3 of the Constitution says, Senators and representatives, executive and judicial officers shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. That makes sense. You, you You put your hand on the Bible and you swear, you give an oath that you will abide by the Constitution. Everyone who takes office, high office, does this. But listen to what it also says. But no religious test, this is the no religious test clause, by the way. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office under the United States. You cannot ask a, an officer, judicial officer, executive, anybody to office. Um, you cannot ask them this. It's a no religion test clause. Um, setting that aside for a second... The dogma living, living inside of us as a Christian, well, that's not extraordinary. That's not some fringe belief. That's just genuine Christian faith, isn't it? It has to be that way, right? If we have genuine Christian faith, then we have to live it out. Not, not to earn not to earn being saved. That's all we're talking about. But if it's genuine Christian faith, it's got to change who we are, right? Let's say it conversely. If there's nothing about us that's changed from our faith, if there's absolutely nothing we, we can say is different about us after we've trusted Jesus, is it genuine faith? Again, this isn't that we got to keep doing good things to earn God's grace, that there's never enough you could do. That's how you come to faith in Christ in the first place is by knowing that there's nothing we can do to earn God's grace and there's nothing we have to do. For it is by grace you've been saved, by faith, not by works so that no one may boast. But genuine faith is supposed to define us. It's supposed to be who we are. It's supposed to make us act different. It's supposed to make us look different. It's supposed to make us separated from the secular world right? That's how it's supposed to look. Um, So the question for us, it it might be, does our faith define us? It's an individual rhetorical question for all of us. Does our faith define us? Is this, is, is our faith a Sunday thing or is it an everyday thing? Um, Do we profess our Christian faith when, when we're around believers that we know it's real comfortable, um, and, and real acceptable to express our faith? Or do non-believers around us know just as much that what we believe as as those around us who are Christians? 
Does our faith define us? Is it obvious to those around us, particularly those who aren't believers? Genuine faith should define us. Genuine faith should define us, and our hope is is supposed to sustain us. Faith, hope, and love, they abide. But by the way, that, that word abide in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that word abide means, means eternal. It, it means lasting, non-perishable, okay? It means eternal. Think about that for a second. We, we talk a lot about what we don't take with us into eternity, right? Stuff, uh, money, um, family. We don't even take family with us, Cert, certainly not at the moment we, we go. Um, there's a lot of things we don't take with us into eternity. Faith, hope, and love abide. That's Paul's point. They last. They last for eternity. There's something about our faith and our hope and love that last with us into eternity. So if, if we're going to ask of a starting point, I, I want to invest in the things that matter. I want to be about the things that are eternal. If you want a starting point for that, maybe a starting point and an ending point for investing in what matters, what lasts, well, invest in faith, hope, and love because they last through eternity. We take those with us. Don't know how that works, but we take those with us. So our faith is supposed to define us and our hope is supposed to sustain us. Uh, It gives us the reasons for why we live. It tells us where we're going. Our hope sustains us in two ways. One, we choose to trust God because of what he's already done for us. We know Jesus died on the cross for us, so we can trust his promises. I mean, the Old Testament's got lots of promises too, and the way God protected the Israelites um, and sustained them and gave them their nation and all those things. That, that's, I mean, th- those are great promises too, but now it's, now it's really real B- because God came to earth and walked around on earth and did, God, did stuff only God can do and fulfilled prophecies and promises that no human or group of people could fulfill themselves or manufacture promises that weren't even made by that group of people. They were made hundreds of years before that. Lots of them outside their control. There is no chance, if Jesus is not the Savior, if he's not the Messiah, there's no chance there can be a Savior or Messiah because no one could do what he did. No one human could do that. So hope tells us we can trust God because of the promises of the past, which means his promises of the future are trustworthy. We can trust what he promises in the future, and we can trust where we're going because Jesus has already defeated sin and death. That's one way that hope sustains us. There's another way, too, because hope leads to joy and peace. Hope leads to joy and peace. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope leads to joy and peace. Joy is different than happiness, of course. Joy is this deep-seated happiness. It is a deep-seated happiness that transcends our circumstances. 
Um, I, I, can, I can be happy today and, and upset tomorrow. I can have a good day today and be happy. I can have a bad day tomorrow and not be happy. Joy transcends all of that. Joy says even in the darkest of times, even when things are at their lowest point, I can still have joy inside. Now, how that works, I'll tell you in a second how I experienced that yesterday um, and how I saw that on display. But joy transcends circumstances. Uh, joy transcends circumstances, and, and then peace transcends understanding. Peace surpasses understanding. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God surpasses all understanding. It goes beyond understanding. It tells us, it tells us that although we don't have the answers, although we don't know why something happens, we still can have peace deep down inside, right? And that's solely because of, of this hope that sustains us. Hope leads to joy and hope leads to peace. Um, I, I saw the greatest display of this that I've ever seen yesterday at a funeral. Uh, I, I coached two sisters who are on my team and their mom died. Um, two teenage girls who've lost their mama. Um, she was diagnosed with cancer less than six months ago. She died a couple of weeks ago. She went into the hospital around Christmas, day before Christmas and did not leave until she came home on hospice. Um, the husband spoke at the funeral yesterday. Probably the only one that did not completely lose it. Um, and he said that he, he said many things that will never leave me, but, um, he said that about a year ago he did it. They did a study, a, a small group study, he and his wife, and it was in James and James one, two through four says, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. My friends, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And he said, that verse is what keeps coming to me. And he, and he said, how could I possibly say that I have joy in cancer? I mean, how can I say that standing here? And he said, let, let me tell you what joy is. And he listed dozens of examples over the past few months of joy that he's seen. So joy is... Christmas Day, a family I've never met before coming to the hospital and giving us a devotional. Joy is um, First Baptist Academy, where these girls had gone before Trinity Christian Academy. Joy is First Baptist Academy buying gifts for our daughters so that they could have Christmas. Joy is a nurse who could pray for me when, it, when I just couldn't pray one night. And, and dozens of examples of what joy is. Hope sustains us. It, it fills us with joy and peace. I, I, want, I want the joy that he has. That's the joy I want. It's easy for me to say that, that hope's supposed to sustain us. Gosh, that, that's what it looks like. Um, so our faith is supposed to define us. Our hope is supposed to sustain us. And our love is supposed to motivate us. The last of the three divine sisters, 
Love is, is faith and hope in action. That's why it's, it's supposed to motivate what we do. Um, it, it, the others kind of are meaningless if, if we don't have love with them. That brings us back to Paul's overriding point. If you don't have love with these other things, they don't work real well, do they? And really, faith, hope, and love, they don't work in a vacuum, do they? Um, I can have faith in something. Let's say I have faith in government. Well, what happens if the government fails? Then all hope is lost. I can also have, I can hope I win the lottery. But if I don't have faith in it, then I'm probably not going to buy tickets. Um, even love by itself doesn't work real well, does it? it even, even love by itself begs the question, what's the motivation for it? Am I, am I looking to get something out of it? Um, love, unconditional love doesn't really work by itself. That's not a concept by itself, um, just in a vacuum. Only when faith, hope, and love work together do they work. And the way that love works in that is that love motivates us. It's faith and hope and action. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, this is right before he's about to talk about faith, hope, and love, uh, and, and love particularly. He, he says, I will show you a more excellent way. Uh, the message translation says, now, now I want to lay out a far better way for you. So more excellent or far better than What? Well, more excellent and far better than legalistically doing things as a Christian because we're supposed to do them. So the legalism of the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to give you a far better way than that. It's not about doing for the sake of doing. It's also not about doing to see what you get out of it. So it's not loving as, as some transaction either. I'm going to show you a more excellent way, a better way than that. And so he says, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, and the greatest is love. So love is to motivate us. Well, why is love the greatest? I, I suppose for starters, it's because it's the two greatest commandments given by Jesus. When Jesus is asked to sum up all of the Old Testament and sum up the commands, it's a trap that's being laid for him by the, by the teachers of the law. Um, he says, well, these two are the greatest commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else is summed up by, by those two commands. Th those are not new, by the way. Love God is, is Deuteronomy 6, 5. It's in the Shema. Um, love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus nineteen eighteen. It's also in the Old Testament. So that's not new. But when Jesus is asked, or when Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room, the night before he's crucified, he, he says this, says a new commandment i give to you that you love one another again it's that it's that command to love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another well the two commandments he gave love god and love your neighbors yourself were not new commands but this one he says a new commandment i give to you that you love one another so there's something different about this one. What's different about this one? He says, just as I have loved you. That's what's new about it. Just as I have loved you. What's different about Jesus' love? It, it is unconditional. It does not ask what you get in return. It, it does not only love those who are close to you. It loves strangers. It loves 
uh, inclusively. It loves enemies. It loves in a way that no one else has ever loved here on earth. It is a completely different kind of love. And so faith, hope, and love, these three remain. Faith defines us, hope sustains us, and love motivates us. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we, uh, we, we, want, we want a faith that, um, that defines us. We want a hope that sustains us, and we want a love that motivates us. We know we can't do that just by trying to be good people. We know we can't do that by just doing what you tell us to. And, and fortunately, you don't ask us to. Um, you, you give us the, the power to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. You equip us to do this by giving us spiritual gifts. Uh, help us this week to love inclusively, to, to love unconditionally, um, and, and for everything we do for love to motivate um, how we treat people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.